We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 129 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. It's the 11th of January, 2018. I am Trevor the Iron Fist. With me once again, Scott the Velvet Glove. Scott, you've got a broken foot, but other than, <laughs> other than that, how are you? I'm really well, thanks, Trevor. Um, I'm not too bad on the foot. It's, um, I'm hobbling around and that sort of thing, but uh, I'm still working from home. So Right, yeah, okay. Good. Wishing you a speedy recovery. All the listeners Thank you are, very much. No yeah. doubt. And um, yeah. because it's still holidays, and well, for me at least, and I'm out and about and down the coast, we're recording during the day, and um, the Scott that purchased, uh, the, not the Scott, the crow that purchased itself in uh, a tree just outside Scott's house is alive and well, and will no doubt contribute <laughs> doing the podcast. And I can't edit him out because it's just too difficult. So if you hear a crow in the background, that's uh, that's what's going on. We're not we're not in a park, but we're just podcasting during the day, and that's what exactly. that, that's what you get for an amateur podcast. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm. All right, Scott. Well, you know, we're a podcast that looks at secular issues in Australia, and this uh, Ruddock panel has had some newsy bits happening in the last little while. So, one of which... Sorry, what was that? They met last Wednesday, didn't they? I think they did. I think they did meet for the first time. And um, one of the things to come out, dear listener, was sort of uh, a news piece to say that public submissions to the panel would be kept secret. And that was the sort of the first bit from the Prime Minister's office. And then the Prime Minister's office said, well, it's sort of up to the rev- uh, the Ruddock panel as to whether they make these things public or not. And then the Ruddock panel said, well, it's really up to the Prime Minister's office whether they make it public or not. And then they've sort of settled on, well, when you make your submission, if you say we can publish it, then we will. But, um, Scott... This is a public inquiry into religious freedom. If you're not prepared to put your name on your submission and have it published, then you shouldn't be listened to. Like this. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the way I feel. I feel if it's a public inquiry, which it is, yep. it's funded by the public, it's funded by the taxpayer, it should be open and completely transparent. Yep. And that way, any nut job out there who runs with the religious scrotum... Mm they are going to think twice about what they actually put in their submission, I would have thought. Well, maybe not. But anyway, at least we'll know exactly who they are. Yeah, you know, we'll know who they are. They're... And we want to know what's influencing this panel. What Exactly. What, what have yeah. people said to them that might have influenced them? So mm-hmm. if things are kept secret, that's not how democracy works. So uh, there's no reason for fear of retribution or persecution that would stop somebody from making a a publicly known submission to this panel. So uh, that's just a, a bad sign for democracy. And all, you know, the normal course of events with these sorts of inquiries is that everything is public. So there's no reason why this one should have any secretive provisions. But uh, yet another reason. Only that um, you've got to wonder what the hell the religious nutters are trying to hide, can't you? Because, you know, every inquiry that we had prior to this has all been made public. And you just 
you'd wonder what the hell they're trying to hide. Well, you know? I don't know that it's come from them. It just seems to have been from the Prime Minister's office and, and Ruddock's panel themselves sort of batting the ball across the net at each other as to, as to, as to this decision. It's just another example of our current crop of leaders having no spine to just simply mm. say, of course it'll be public and uh, end of the matter. So when you, dear listener... Uh, there is a link on the website to where you go to lodge a submission and it does, uh, the sort of form that you fill in gives the option. Um, You have to tick one of these two boxes. One says, my submission can be published along with only my name and the other option is my submission is confidential and cannot be published. So they're allowing confidential submissions in the current... And mm. I think that is ridiculous. Mm. Mm. You know, if something, is, if something is funded by the public, it should be made publicly available. Yeah. So there's a form there that you can fill in and there's also an email address and a snail mail address if you prefer. And submissions have to be in by the end of the month. And Scott, I'm going to sit down at some stage in the next week and nut out a submission and we'll put that on the website and if the dear listener wants to copy and paste and and you know adopt it and send their own submission then they can do that so that's the plan there we go now that i've said it that'll force me to do it (laughs) so um so that's the panel and um and we expect any of our listeners that do cut and paste or do use that as a basis to uh have their uh their um to tick the fact that they're happy to make it public. Yes, that's right. There's a condition. If you're going to use it, then make, your, <laughs> make yourself public. Scott, this is not the first time that there's been some sort of inquiry or look or examination of religious freedom in Australia. And we have a link to an article which is in the Religion and Ethics... Oh, blog section of ABC website um, by Nelson Possumay Inesetti and Dunn and it's looking at, um, well I'll just the opening paragraph here from mid-2008 to mid-2009 which Scott isn't that long ago is it? I mean, we're only, No it's not yeah. No, it's less than 10 years ago mm. The Australian Human Rights Commission sought to gather views from faith into faith and civil society groups on freedom of religion and belief in the 21st century. The inquiry set out to examine freedom of religion and human rights in the face of increased religious diversity, but also to examine the role of religion in the public sphere. So we've done all this less than 10 years ago by, you know, Australian Human Rights Commission. What do we pay these guys for if not just to do this sort of stuff and, you know... Anyway... Uh, these guys. To be fair, Trevor, the yes. government did sit on the uh, recommendations for two years. Yeah, well, they'll probably sit on this next one as well. <laughs> Hopefully, because I doubt that the recommendations are going to be in favour of secularism. So, no, especially considering that they haven't got any secular voices on the panel. But yeah. anyway, we can keep flogging that dead horse. Until yeah, we, actually, that just reminds me. Well, I'll just digress one moment. That guy, Professor Aroni, uh, Nicholas Aroni, who was a last-minute addition onto the panel. Yeah, he has said. Uh, he's you know you can find the text where he's quoted as saying this: the right of individuals to formulate and articulate their beliefs 
to act upon their consciences and to associate with fellow believers is fundamental to a free society. Here's the next important bit. If religious freedom is restricted to an individual's right to believe with no right to practice one's belief, then it does not amount to very much at all. So uh, he's saying freedom of belief alone is not sufficient. There's got to be this freedom to practice. And that's the distinction I've been trying to make in the last few weeks, Scott. And um, yeah, but you drew the conclusion that freedom to practice was very different to freedom of belief. Exactly. And freedom to belief was a fundamental right, but freedom of practice wasn't. Yes, and he's saying yeah. that the right to both of them is pretty fundamental. And uh, he doesn't think that the right to practice should be watered down. So He's uh, smoking wacky tobacco. Well, he, he might be, but he's on that goddamn panel, so that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> might be smoking wacky tobacco <laughs> just, to, just to get over it <laughs> by the time we hear what these guys are saying. Anyway, back to this uh, Human Rights Commission report less than 10 years ago, and the authors of this particular article looked into the background of this report and um, uh, they were looking at the submission process. Who submitted stuff to this inquiry and, and uh, you know, where did they come from? What sort of things were they saying? And uh, quite interesting, Scott, I think. Um, a central component of the consultation process involves seeking public submissions, of which 2,033 were received. Um, it says here, our focus here is different to that from the inquiry, as our primary interest is critically to analyse the religious voice in the public submissions and the impact of the public submission process on social policy. We wanted to address two questions. Was the nature of the voice expressed in the submissions or what was the nature of the voice, and to what extent was this reflective of the broader Australian population? And if submissions had a particular interested view of freedom of religion, what implications might this have for social policy? So, Scott, I'm really worried about just the inundation to the Ruddock panel of religious nutters with their opinions and very few secular voices, and these guys basically looked at this issue you know, a bit less than 10 years ago in relation to that particular inquiry at that time. And uh, here's what they decided after looking at um, what they said here. In general, the Christian voice could be characterised as defensive and resentful of the legitimacy offered to non-Christians and atheists. The dominance of the Christian religious voice was also seen in the submission process. So they went through, catalogued all the submissions and, you know, sort of uh, looked at the data and, and came up with these conclusions. Of course, Scott, in order to do that, you need to have the submissions being public that everybody can see them. So Exactly, yeah. yeah these guys couldn't do this in relation to the Ruddock inquiry because mm. some of them will potentially be private. Uh, anyway, one of their other conclusions mm. was there was substantial... Uh, antipathy towards secularism, apart from a small minority, 6%, who asserted that Australia should see itself as a secular country. Oh, that's not many, is it? Uh, no, it's not. And I, I think that's a, um, it's probably a reflection of the fact that we secularists are a little harder to get pro riled up, I think. Yep. 
Very hard. And mm. we are very hard to get moving, but let me assure the dear listener, mm. you're going to want to get moving before these idiots put on over the top of us what they want to put over the top of us. Yep. Because it's going to be bloody hard to get rid of once it's there. Yeah. Oh, they'll have no no compunction about um, installing all sorts of religious privileges. Um, exactly. Yeah. Here it says, um, of uh, the... Uh, so there was nearly 2,000 submissions. Of those, 1,029 mentioned exemptions for religious groups and 92% were in favour of religious groups receiving exemptions. The overwhelming support for religious exemption might seem surprising. However, as noted above, the majority of organisation submissions stemmed from Christian religious groups. And at the same time, the majority of religious-run social services, such as education, aged care, hospitals, etc., are Christian-run. The large volume of expressed opinion in favour of exemptions suggests the possibility of a coordinated campaign. The intention of such a campaign would have been to influence public policy on the matter of discrimination legislation. No surprises there. And finally, finally, the last quote from this, dear listener, Christian groups had the benefits of effective establishmentarianism and were able to flood the submission process with their vested cases for religious privilege, such that the status quo on religious entitlement prevailed. That's what happened nearly 10 years ago, and that's what's going to happen again uh, this time round, unless, dear listener, you pull your finger out and write a submission. <laughs> or copy and paste mine when I pull my finger out. Um, I think that the, the, the problem with this time is that you've got the religious right of the coalition have got their back up over gay marriage. Hmm. And I think that could be a motivating factor behind... Well, I think that was the motivating was the motivating factor behind this religious inquiry, anyway. But because you've got the religious right, have got their back up, you could end up with something coming out of this religious investigation that could result in legal changes, mm. which could be disastrous for us all. <laughs> it could be, but hey, Scott, surely the Labor Party will save us from some sort of. <laughs> religious Armageddon. I don't think so, no, because I I did see um, there was a report that's not in here, but there was a report from the ABC that said that, or it may have been The Guardian, that said Tanya Plitasek has said that there's no appetite within Labor to change the laws against discrimin that enables religious people to discriminate on the basis of their religion. Yep, that's quite correct. I've got an article here. Tanya Plibersek okay. indicates the opposition the opposition intends to defend the status quo in the freedom of religion debate. Labor has no plans to change religious exemptions in discrimination law that allow schools to, uh, religious schools to fire teachers based on their sexuality. Tanya Plibersek has said. There we go. So we can't count on Labor, of course, to help out. And um, just, uh, I'm going to give some examples, actually, of that discrimination shortly. But I stumbled across an article which, um, just, you know, harking back to this freedom of belief and 
and freedom to hold a belief and freedom to practice being two things. And dear listener, if you're going to write a submission, I suggest you make that sort of distinction in it. Uh, Anyway, this is an article by Peter Singer, who is a famous sort of Australian philosopher who's often very much associated with rights of animals. And he's vegetarian because he thinks it's unfair to animals that they be killed to feed humans. And he often comes out with some sort of left-wing, well, no, left-field sort of views of philosophy. And um, in this article, he has sort of made mention of some proposed legislation in the Netherlands. And there's a party in the Netherlands called Party for the Animals. And they've been campaigning um, uh, that uh, for a law that all animals be stunned before slaughter. And, of course, under um, Islamic and Jewish practice, uh, they like to, or they see it, that they need to... Um, they're prohibited from eating meat from animals that are not conscious when they're killed. So um, so that proposed law in the Netherlands is, is one of the few occasions where the Islamic and Jewish leaders have come together <laughs> in cooperation. It's a pretty sad, sad state of affairs when, when the only thing that can get these two together is, is their desire that they... That animals be fully conscious when their throats are slit. So, I can't, for the life of me, understand that. I mean, it doesn't make it. It's in the books. That's all that matters, Scott. It's in the books. Anyway. Anyway, it's nice to see them getting together over something. It's just, just, it's just, it's just sad that it has to be over the slitting of an animal's throat while it's fully conscious. Yeah. Exactly. You know, that is absolutely madness. In, in, I, I loved the article. Sorry, I cut you off. Go yeah. on. Incidentally, Scott, um, mm. when it comes to meat, uh, apparently if animals are sort of spooked, like a cow is spooked when you slaughter it, then um, the adrenaline that's released... Um, Makes the meat tougher. Yes. Mm. So I would have thought that the sort of the beef that's slaughtered in this religiously traditional way would be a lot tougher than the normal meat. Would that make sense? Well, one would have thought so, you know. Mm. Did I... Did I, did I, I, did I, I did have this conversation with Deep Throat about this once, and he said that um, if you slit an animal's throat properly, mm. from ear to ear and that sort of thing, that the animal goes into shock almost instantly and dies fairly painlessly. Right. Which, mm, you know, it, it can't be that... Oh. Nothing could... Could could uh, ease an animal's passing faster than the electric bolt that has been designed to go into the back of the skull and that sort of stuff. But anyway, it, it probably requires a skilled operator with a knife and an environment, exactly. you know, where you can take your time and do it. You know, but mm-hmm. some of the scenes from those Indonesian slaughterhouses looked—it's absolutely horrific. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, yeah. those animals were completely panicked. Um, yeah. And slipping and sliding and all of the blood and guts and stuff on the floor. It was, yeah, there's plenty of adrenaline running through their body, for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. But um, did I ever tell you the story of Freezer, the, the, the cow called Freezer? No, you didn't. No. A, a mate of mine had a little hobby farm in Debra, and they, uh, you know, just small, and uh, they had a, well, they bought a calf, and they called it Freezer, because that's where it was going to eventually end up. 
and and he had he had some young daughters, you know, probably teenagers or something like that. And Freezer was a little bit, you know, like the family pet uh, on this hobby farm, and uh, would come up and be hand fed and all that sort of stuff. And you know, so Freezer was there for a couple of years, and then he organised for a guy come to to kill Freezer. Um, ready to go in the freezer <laughs> and anyway he's booked this guy this morning and he's sitting down on his um kitchen um knowing that the guy's due soon having a cup of tea or whatever and this guy's uh arrived in his truck and my mate has my mate peter has seen him um driving up the driveway and he knew that the kids were around so he thought oh i better get the kids out of the road because you know, they they probably don't want to see freezer being shot. You know, I better I better gather them up and just shuffle them away while it's happening. Anyway, this guy who's employed to shoot freezer has come roaring up the driveway, slid the car into a into a halt, and in, in a cloud of dust, at the same time burst out of the car, jumped the fence, and shot f- freezer straight in the head before my mate could even get down the stairs. <laughs> And he's thinking, oh, no, the kids would have seen this. By the time he got down there, the kids were all standing around Freezer, licking their ice creams and um, quite content. (laughs) (laughs) But the point being that this guy uh, was actually, he did it really, really quick because he didn't want Freezer to be spooked and for the adrenaline to be in Freezer's body. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so there we go. So, um, so that was the story of Freezer, but I've I've digressed. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's, yeah. um, I thought you were going to tell me that the animal ended up living a ripe old age. <laughs> no. a story like there's a story similar to that at home, and because um, I lived out on acreage, and there was a hobby farm next to us that was five acres and that sort of thing, and they had two old adult cows there, mm. and they weren't milking or anything like that. One of them was male, the other one was female. Yep, yep, and. They just. I said to them. I said to them once. I said, "Why have you got them both there? You know, they, they don't breed or anything like that." And they just. They just laughed and said, "Oh, we got them both years ago because we're going to kill them. Mm. And when the time came, we couldn't do it." So. <laughs> <laughs> Happens a lot, probably. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. 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 Anyway, back to Peter Singer and uh, yeah. the animal slaughter bit, and so. He sort of uh, prefaced his article with the story about the uh, the Jews and the Muslims getting together over their desire to um, cruelly slice the necks of animals for slaughter. And he's also just referred to, say, in the United States, uh, where big employers, including Catholic hospitals and universities, uh, have to offer health insurance that covers contraception and the objections by the religious groups there. And he talked about in Israel, the ultra-Orthodox who interpret Jewish law as prohibiting men from touching women to whom they are not related or married and who therefore want separate seating for men and women on buses and planes. Um, And he said, in relation to all those exemptions that these religious groups are seeking... um, uh, There's really no problem in refusing their request, he says. But prohibiting the ritual slaughter of animals does not stop Jews or Muslims from practising their religion. During the debate on the Party for the Animals proposal, Rabbi Binyamin Jacobs, chief rabbi of the Netherlands, told members of Parliament, if we no longer have people who can do ritual slaughter in the Netherlands, we will stop eating meat. 
Peter Singer says, and that, of course, is what one should do if one adheres to a religion that requires animals to be slaughtered in a manner less humane than can be achieved by modern techniques. So simply saying, um, neither Islam nor Judaism upholds a requirement to eat meat. And I'm not calling upon Jews and Muslims to do any more than I've chosen to do myself for ethical reasons for more than 40 years. So that's fine, just don't eat meat, is what he's saying. Uh, allowing men and women to sit on in any part of a bus does not violate Orthodox Jewish religious freedom because Jewish law does not command that one use public transport. It's just a convenience that one can do without. And Orthodox Jews... Oh, he says here, Orthodox Jews can hardly believe that the laws to which they adhere were intended to make life maximally convenient. That's true. Um, also, he says... You know, in relation to hospitals, for example, where um, you know Catholic hospitals will refuse um, you know abortions or contraceptive or stem cell research or things like that, he says Catholicism does not oblige its adherents to run hospitals and universities. So, if you can't uh, offer full services, just don't run a hospital. Exactly. Yeah. I like his argument. Mm. So, um, so that's Peter Singer. Uh, and that's why I loved the article, because mm. I thought he hit the nail right on the head. He said to the Jews and Muslims, if you don't want to eat meat yep. that hasn't been slaughtered in the most proficient way possible, yep. don't eat meat. Yep. You know? And, and that, that is an entirely reasonable argument to put forward to them. And if you can't run a school without a special exemption allowing you to sack people because they're gay, then don't, mm-hmm. run, don't run a school. Run a school. You don't exactly. have to. If you can't sell a cake to a gay a gay couple, <laughs> then don't run a cake shop. It's that simple. Oh, anyway, uh, there are. Did you hear that twelfth man? Yeah, he <laughs> he's just his libertarian views are too strong. So, <laughs> so anyway, Deep Throat has sent us. Um, uh, a little article, and it included links to various stories about discrimination in the school system. So, you know, dear listener, our state laws can contain many special laws that say that, you know, you can't discriminate when hiring people or firing people, except, of course, if you're a religious place. Then you can. And so these schools are... Um, you know, if they find out that a teacher is gay uh, or an unmarried mother or something like that, then they can simply say, well, that's not in accordance with our moral code and therefore you're sacked. And if any other business tried to do that, they would be dragged through the court and forced to pay a huge compensation and to rehire the person, but not so for religious groups. So here's a link. Oh, there's a various links that we've got on the website to different stories. First one, it, uh, first one, sorry, is uh, you're gay, you're out. Gay teacher sacked due to WA law loophole. And um, Craig Campbell had attended South Coast Baptist College as a child through its kindergarten, primary and secondary school. And then he taught there for nearly three years. And... Um, Speaking to an LGBTI community newspaper out in Perth, he said, 
He'd attended the school as a student through primary and secondary school and loved being a teacher there over the last three years. Um, He said, though, that he and his partner went to his aunt's wedding and there were three kids from his school were at the wedding. And um, he realised, I can't hide my, you know, his gay relationship anymore. So believing he was doing the right thing, he chose to speak to the head of his department at the school about his relationship. Uh, Quoted here, I told them I was in a relationship and obviously this is something that I believe is fine from both a moral and theological standpoint. Following his admission, Mr Campbell soon learned he'd been taken off the list of approved relief teachers for the school and the school later confirmed he'd been let go due to an inconsistency with his beliefs on sexuality and on the college's beliefs. Um, So uh, when they learned he was gay, his services were no longer required. And, you know, what I found ridiculous about that is under Section 73, any LGBTI staff member at a private or religious school can be sacked for no reason. This includes teachers, administrative staff, gardeners. Mm-hmm. You know, it even goes further that LGBT students can be expelled and church schools can refuse to enrol students just for coming from same-sex families. It does, it does happen, dear listener. and um, Ooh, Absolutely. This article makes the point, actually, as a little sideline. In the United Kingdom, any religious or church school which accepts government funding must yes. must abide by human rights law and cannot discriminate. Any church school that wants to do what these schools in Perth have done would not be allowed to accept government funding. And we are long overdue for having that sort of reform pushed through our system. Mm. Because it's bloody ridiculous the amount of money that these church schools suck in every year and yet they can turn around and tell people to get stuffed because they're gay. Mm. You know, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Another example, Caloundra Christian College uh, uh, terminated the employment of a pregnant kindergarten teacher, Jessica Davidson. She was given notice because of a lifestyle breach in that she was pregnant and unmarried. Um, it's an old story, that one. You know, but it, 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 it is an old story. Um, what, 2012 is when it happened. Mm. And it, it really does beg a belief because had she have been married under a, under a civil ceremony, they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have been able to sack her. But, you know, the civil ceremony doesn't acknowledge the church and all that sort of thing, you know? Mm. That's the thing I find ridiculous about that. Mm. Uh, This must have been published in The Daily. The Daily's website choked with more than 200 comments yesterday, mostly from people angry at the school's stance. An online poll was more evenly divided. Nearly 40% said that people employed at religious schools should adhere to lifestyle rules. Garbage. No, this is... (laughs) But Scott- I know that. I know. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous that people think like this because they're not on the receiving end of it. You know, if they found, uh, for whatever reason, that eating Vegemite and cheese was somehow illegal, mm. then they would be the first to complain about it because it's got nothing to do with them, blah, 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 blah. This is exactly the same thing. It's got nothing to do with anyone else what your living arrangements are. 
But Scott, Suncoast Christian Outreach Centre pastor Chaz Gullow said any organisation should be entitled to uphold its values. If someone agrees to uphold the values of a company and then violates them, what other values will they contravene, he said. <laughs> but, you know, Scott, we had that essential poll that, you know, well, it's a couple of months ago now, where uh, it was something like 40% of Australians were OK with this sort of discrimination. And I can't understand it, you know. I think that um, a lot of people view religion as something that's benevolent and doesn't interfere and that sort of thing. Mm. But when you actually really do peel away those outer layers, you find it does cause all sorts of dramas. Mm. You know? Here's another example, dear listener. A Mandura private school, which receives millions of dollars every year in taxpayer <coughs> funding, has told the father of a seven-year-old girl... She would not have been welcome had it known her parents were gay. Uh, Brendan, who was asked for his last name to be withheld to protect the identity of his daughter, raised allegations of discrimination on the basis of his sexuality against Foundation Christian College last week. Uh, um, let me just, I'll just sort of scroll past where I need to go. Um, he was told by the school principal last week that that she could only stay at the school as long as she did not speak of her father's sexuality or of his relationship with his partner. Mm. You know, God alone knows why, but anyway. Mm. So that's, yeah. Well, my go- my, he says here, my daughter got talking about Tony Abbott and gay marriage and mentioned that her dad is with his partner. Mm. And she was shut down by her teacher and then the teacher had to explain to the class what gay is. We were asked to go into a meeting that we thought would be about her education and how she was going in class, only to be told that my daughter had mentioned I'm gay, he said. Um, I was told that they don't promote gay at the school and my daughter was unable to talk about my life uh, and general stuff. Uh, She could mention my name, but she couldn't talk about us being gay or relating to us as a couple. Uh, you better watch yourself because you could catch the gay. <laughs> Brendan said he felt bullied and decided to withdraw his daughter from Foundation Christian College and enrol her in a public primary school rather than have her live with the risk of being expelled at any time. Well, Brendan, that's what you should have done in the first place, mate, was just go <laughs> to a public school. Um, oh, here we go. Um, just, uh, just to give a slightly different slant to it... Um, um, the principal, Mr Newhouse, who was a candidate for Family First in the 2013 federal election, denied the family was driven from the school, um, but did confirm that children from same-sex parents were not welcome, and he accused Brendan of concealing his sexuality during the interview process. When the father submitted his application, he did so with his ex-wife as part of the process, he said. Knowing that the college would not endorse an application from the same-sex parents, I find there is not openness from the parents' point of view. So the principal is saying that they were being sneaky because he uh, he attended the interview with his ex-wife rather than rocking up with his male partner. Well, that I find ridiculous because you would imagine that the uh, enrolment process says, you know, the names of the parents. So you'd go with yourself and your ex-wife. Correct. Yep. Now... 
there was no question on the enrolment questionnaire about his sexuality. Yep. So that shouldn't have been a problem. Yep. And it's quite normal in a broken marriage for the biological parents to go to such a meeting without the step-parents, I would have thought. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, final one, I think, along these lines. Um, This time in Broken Hill, uh, in far western New South Wales, a same-sex couple say they are shocked their daughter has been rejected from a Catholic primary school because of their relationship. Um. One of the mothers said the principal phoned her and said the woman's relationship, the women's relationship and living situation was the reason the application was turned down. The woman said they welcomed the religious teachings of the school, which would allow their daughter to be open-minded to religious beliefs and free to form her own views. Um, one of the women, who was christened, christened Catholic, said her daughter wanted to attend the same school as her best friend. Once again, if you're a same-sex couple and all of the trouble that religious groups have given you and your sisters or brothers, mm-hmm. what, are you, what are you doing sending your kid to a religious school in the first place? Exactly. It doesn't make any sense, does it? Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm angry at everyone, Scott. I'm angry at the schools <laughs> for discriminating. And I'm just angry against these gay couples sending their kids to religious schools after all the trouble these groups have caused them. There we go. Mm. Um, Okay, so that's that. Uh, Oh, and just finally here, article entitled Schools Right to Defend um, This Sort of Stuff. Um, uh, Ian Baker, Acting Executive Director of New South Wales Catholic Education Commission, said the fact that so few, if any, cases of students being expelled were widely known was testament to the fact schools tended to treat such students with sensitivity. This is their argument as to why they should continue to be allowed to discriminate, which this guy is essentially saying it's because we don't use it very often. <laughs> so, there's so few cases, but the reality would be that people are keeping it quiet because they know they're going to be expelled. So, well, yeah. it's certainly it's certainly a reason why they'd keep it quiet because the possibility of them being expelled was quite high. Yeah. You know, it's ridiculous that anyone would mount a defence saying, "Oh, it's hardly ever used. Don't worry about it." You know. Yeah. Yep. If it's hardly ever used, then take it off your books. Exactly. There we go. So that's their view. Um, all right. So that's religious freedom and. Uh, that's the end of that topic. And do go in and mm. put in a submission and that sort of thing. Mm. It doesn't have to be long. Put it in there just to let people know that you are thinking about this. Indeed. Yep. Can't be that hard. All right. Um, we haven't mentioned uh, Donald Trump for a <clears throat> while, Scott, but he's <laughs> he's excelled himself in recent times and deserves a mention. Uh In in an extraordinary um, public defence of his own mental stability, Donald Trump issued a volley of tweets, and uh, the most interesting one of which was he said, Actually, throughout my life, my two greatest assets have been mental stability and being, like, really smart. 
He also said he, quote, would qualify as not smart, but genius, and a very stable genius at that. (laughs) This is in response to the book The Fire and the Fury, isn't it, inside the Trump White House? I'm not sure if it was... It's hard to keep track. It might have been. Yeah. Um, it, oh, here it is. Yeah. The book Fire Fury Inside the Trump White House by Michael Wolf burst into public consciousness on Wednesday when Guardian reported excerpts nearly a, he- a week ahead of publication. Trump threatened to sue, but succeeded only in prompting the publisher, Henry Holt, to bo- bring the book forward. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, this, you know, it's very funny. I'm sorry to cut you off, but there was... Um, have you finished saying what you wanted to say about it? No, no, you go ahead. Okay. Towards the end of the article, the 25th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution provides for the removal of a president if the majority of the cabinet and vice president agree. In Wolf's book, then White House strategist Steve Bannon refers to Vice President Mike Pence as our fallback guy. Pence stood to Trump's right at the Camp David, his gaze rarely leaving the president. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, that could get very ugly. Mm. Pence is a well-known God-botherer. And he's a gold botherer of the old school, the type that um, wants to, he wants to remove, um, well, there's no subsidy for US drugs, but he wants to remove, um, he would, he would want to remove contraception from the, uh, from any of the uh, health insurance codes and that sort of thing. He wants to stop abortion. He wants to stop, he wants to even, he wants to even, uh, take people like myself and send us off to camps and that sort of stuff to get the gay out of us. So. When you said he's from the old school, I don't reckon yeah. the old school were as, were as crazy <laughs> as, as the new schools. Well, that's probably true, these, yes. Yeah. These guys are pushing new limits of, of pro-Christian, anti-secularist ideas that are just that's beyond true, yeah. what might have that's been contemplated um, previously. So... Um, uh, so yeah, I, th- I think I think these guys, the, the new school is worse than the old school, perhaps. But um, yeah, probably. But uh, just in like, just in response to what Donald Trump said about being a genius, I like this. Uh, there's a statement by a guy called Paul Krugman who said, "Like millions of people around the world, I was reassured to learn that Donald Trump is a very stable genius. You see, if he weren't." If he were instead an erratic, vindictive, uninformed, lazy, would-be tyrant, we might be in real trouble. <laughs> oh dear, Scott. We previously uh, put down the Trump victory uh, on the three R's: race, religion, and redneck. And at the and then I subsequently had to add a fourth R, which was Rust Belt. And, mm. and after this book has come out, there's now a fifth R, Scott, which is reckless. And what the book has said is that Trump had no intention of winning that presidential race. And for him... No. It was he apparently... He, I'm sorry to cut you off, yeah. but one of the conspiracy theories I heard was he was only running to put himself up as a nice guy for the Russians and that sort of thing so he could build Trump tower in moscow oh just i I would just as a publicity just for his own brand yeah exactly that's what he was doing he was was doing it he was doing it to to kiss up to the russians and apparently no one else was more surprised than him when he lost when he when hillary lost yeah well not even just the russians just his own brand of trump you know for celebrity apprentice and all the other stuff that um 
that he does uh, is basically just going to be a publicity stunt and that his wife was just crying when it looked like he had actually won because that was the last thing she wanted was to be first lady. <laughs> exactly. And I reckon that explains... A, 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 just adds a good little explanation to to his complete fearlessness in saying the most outrageous things along the way where he just mocked, mm. you know... He mocked prisoners of war and, you know... Exactly. And all that sort of stuff. Um, the way he carried on towards McCain, that mm. was bloody disgraceful. Yes. You know? and, and all the other abhorrent things that he did, which were just completely carefree, and to me that helps add up to a lot of what happened, that he... He was completely liberated in what he was saying because he really didn't want the job. So Exactly, yeah. It really adds up for me. So mm. when people talk about how did he win, uh, race, religion, redneck, rust belt and reckless, and I reckon that's a good summary of where it is. And, Scott, based on that, so if he didn't want to win the first time round and, you know, he pulled it off, I reckon the chances of him actually wanting to run for a second term are zero. <laughs> Wouldn't you agree? Um, he hates the job. He wants. I know he hates the job. He, he hates the job and that sort of stuff. There's, there's, there's been another report that we didn't have here today saying that he, um, he turns up to work between ten and eleven and that sort of stuff and stays for about four hours and then goes off and does his own thing it really wouldn't surprise me because he does hate the job there's no doubt about that and it does make me wonder whether or not you could be right you, you could be right he could be thinking to himself well bugger this i won't bother it, it he, he he doesn't want to achieve anything it's not like he's got an agenda that he's he's got you know well he's been there he's thought well hell i'll i'll pass some tax benefits for myself and my family since i'm here i may as well yeah but but you know he's not you know he just wants to play golf and hang out with his buddies and watch Fox News and, and all the things that he's forced to do, the intrusions into his lifestyle. Most occupants going into the White House with all of the servants and, you know, the jet airplane and the helicopters on beck and call and all that, um, and all that's got a bit of a sort of um, an attraction to it to most people. But for him, that's just every day anyway. Like that, you exactly. Know, that, yeah. So... The intrusions into uh, his day-to-day life would be terrible for him, given that he doesn't want to achieve anything. And um, and if this book is correct, that he did it and didn't want to win, I don't think... I, I think, well, I think that the chances of him running again are zero, because A, he won't want to, and B, he may well die beforehand, because he's an unhealthy-looking character. And <laughs> at, at his age, the chances of dropping off the perch would be pretty high. And then C, even if he did want to run, actually successfully pulling it off would be difficult, right? Do you agree with all that? So well, I do agree with all that. So it is a possibility that he's not going to run again, yeah. Yeah. So um, So he could he could hand the he could hand the hospital pass over to uh, Mike Pence, but um Well I, Scott, I'm convinced. I'm absolutely convinced there's no way he would win a second term because I don't even think he'd nominate. So I'm looking at the betting markets, Scott. You know, like, because there's obviously bets if you want to bet that Trump will win. And, um, but, you know, there's also the ability to bet that he won't win. And I reckon that's mm-hmm. a good bet. 
So I've gone on to like I've I um I've never used it, but have you heard of Betfair? I have. I've never used it. Yeah. So you know where um basically members of the public um can bet against each other in different things. So on there, there are people wanting to back Donald Trump to win a second term in 2020. And there are people there who will say, okay, I'll take that bet. So it looks like, Scott, I'd have to offer odds of around uh, 4 to 1, $3.70, 4 to 1. To say that he wouldn't win? Yeah, yeah. So So if somebody bet me $100 and he did win, I'd be... I'd be having to cough up 400. Uh, sorry, and he did win, then I'd be having to cough up 400. But if he didn't win, I'd keep the $100. So I reckon that's a good bet. Well, certainly, yeah, it could be, yeah. Just while we're here on this page, Scott, <laughs> this is uh, uh, who else is in the market here for um, 2020? After Donald Trump, uh, who is. So he's currently at, at, if you want to back him to win, he's at like $3.60. So there's obviously a difference in the spread because Betfair takes its commission out. But um, mm. $3.60 um, is Donald Trump as, as the favourite to win in 2020. The next, he's the favourite, is he? Yeah, because the, op- you know, the opposition, well, yeah, he is. Um, yeah, he is. Like, it's crazy. Guess who's next, Scott, on the betting line? Oprah? God, you, you are good, Scott. <laughs> she is at 14. Mike Pence at 14. Kamala Harris, whoever that is, at six, 16. Her. Elizabeth Warren, who I have heard of, I've is, heard at, of is at 17 Warren, yeah. and a half. Bernie Sanders at 20. Joe Biden, 21. Um, let's just go down the list here a little bit. Uh, Biden's getting a bit long in the tooth for another run. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michelle Obama, $36. Mark Zuckerberg, uh, 36 uh, Dwayne Johnson, is he The Rock? Is that... I don't know, he's, no, he can't be. I couldn't no, tell you. I don't know. Uh, hmm. Hillary Clinton, 75 um, uh, Yeah, I'd say Hillary's done for. She's not going to be back. Yeah. Actually, Iv- Ivanka... Uh, the daughter, she's at twenty. <laughs> she's at twenty. <laughs> uh, so this is twenty. This is this is to, this is to win, is this it? Is, so, yeah, put, this is, yeah. so if you put a dollar on Ivanka yeah, winning, yeah. and she wins, then you you get twenty bucks. Yeah, right? that's what. Yeah. Um, uh, let's just go down to see if there's any more. Uh, Al Gore, one hundred and eighty. Uh, and there was a couple of good ones. Oh, uh, Kanye West, 310. <laughs> George Clooney, 300. <laughs> uh, yeah, there we go. So I'm going to investigate that a bit more, Scott. It just, you know, for a bit of a punt for the podcast, it might be worth doing just as an experiment. So, it could be, yeah. yeah. Um, I'll be interested, dear listener, do you think it's a good... Do you think it's a good bet or not to sort of bet against Trump winning? <laughs> Scott, one other thing Trump's come out with this week uh, is he said in a tweet, 
North Korean leader Kim Jong-un just stated that the nuclear button is on his desk at all times. Will someone from his depleted and food-starved regime please inform him that I too have a nuclear button, but it is much bigger and more powerful one than his and my button works? Exclamation mark. Yeah, it... Um, that, that sort of thing, it, it does beg a belief because he, he doesn't seem to have got the difference between um, running for president and like your, your reckless comment before. I, I can agree with that. That's the way he was running. He was running a reckless campaign. But this is not running a campaign. This is, uh, what's the word I'm groping for? This is international diplomacy. Mm. And he's failing very badly at it. Mm. That might be another reason why I might win that bet in 2020, is that we may not exist in 2020. Just might, be, <laughs> might just be cockroaches running around. <laughs> well, one would hope not, because I would imagine the uh, North Korean response wouldn't be as big as the American response would be. Mm. So. Scott, over the holidays, I read a book called Command and Control by Eric Schlosser. And... Uh, Good book, uh, a little bit too detailed, if anything, and a bit sort of hard going at times, but it was holidays and I could persevere. And um, the book was basically the story about a, uh, a Titan missile in, um, in the Midwest in one of those silos and the maintenance crew working on it, one guy accidentally dropped a spanner and as it fell through the sort of um, cavern that this thing's in, it struck the side of the of the missile, causing a leak of fuel. And um, one mistake led to another and another and another. And eventually, the whole thing, um, all of the fuel basically blew up. And... Um, Fortunately, the the nuclear warhead didn't detonate, but it just you know flew a few hundred meters into the air and then just plopped back on the ground. And uh, so the book is is sort of that story, and then interlaced between the history of the build up of nuclear weapons and and a litany of near disasters that occurred with nuclear weapons. Um, Scott, when you read this book, we're extremely lucky that there has not been some sort of nuclear accident um, just fumbled upon in the last 50 years. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you, when, you, um, when, they, when the Cold War ended mm. and the Russian archives and that sort of stuff were starting to be opened up, mm. you know, we came very close to a situation where the Soviets thought the Americans were launching missiles. Yes. And they're, they're, I forget what they were relying on, but they were relying on flashes and that sort of stuff that were picked up by satellites. And It was actually just the sun's rays. Sun's rays were, be, were off roofs or something like that. And the Soviets came very close to thinking that they were under attack and they were very close to launching their own response. Had they have done that, then Western, well, human civilization would be no more. Yes. You know? A similar thing happened on the American side. So they had mm. um, NORAD, North American Aerospace Defense Command. 
mm. headquarters in Colorado Springs. And November 9th, uh, 1979, suddenly the screens were filled with images of a major Soviet attack on the United States. It really looked like an all-out attack and that President Jimmy Carter might have to make a decision about whether or not to respond. It was investigated very quickly and other radars showed no sign of the attack. The decision was made that this was a false alarm. It was soon realised that someone had inadvertently put a training tape um, and the training tape was of an all-out Soviet attack into a computer and the computer had presented the training tape as a real attack. Uh, You can laugh now, but, you know... At the time, you know, the world was on a hair trigger. Yes. You know, and had Jimmy Carter, had that have been reported to Jimmy Carter, he would have probably been under enormous pressure to launch a retaliatory strike. The Soviets would then be watching these missiles coming to them saying, what the hell's going on here? And then they'd fire back, you know? Yep. So what they had done, actually, in the 60s and that, because they were developing these intercontinental ballistic missiles, but... um, you know, the response times were tricky. And so what they were also doing was they were just loading nuclear bombs onto B-52 bombers mm-hmm. and had some in the air at all times. So, exactly. Yeah. And uh, there was an incident in 1962. One of these bombers was on a routine flight. And um, uh, while it was flying, the pilot noticed there was a weight imbalance and they needed to dump their fuel and get back to base. And um, while they were trying to get back, the weight imbalance started to break up the plane. And as the B-52 bomber broke apart mid-air, the crew was evacuating, there was a lanyard in the cockpit. And it, it was the lanyard, this was the lanyard that crew members would normally pull to release a hydrogen bomb. Anyway, the centrifugal forces of the plane breaking apart pulled the lanyard as though a human being had pulled it. Oh, for God's sake. So the plane's spiralling out of control. Centrifugal forces have pulled the lanyard and the bomb is deployed. And fortunately, there was one other fail-safe sort of switch that had to be thrown. Um, So the hydrogen bomb went through all of its proper arming steps except one. And when it hit the ground in North Carolina... There was a firing signal sent, and if that one switch in the bomb had been switched, it would have detonated a full-scale thermonuclear explosion in North Carolina. Mm. Bloody hell. And honestly, they had so many thousands of these things, and, you know, they're flying them around in B-52 bombers, and they've got them in silos where simply dropping a wrench can cause the whole thing to explode. Mm. Uh, there's over a thousand incidents with nuclear weapons... Um, and um, very, very lucky that nothing has happened just by accident so far. Well, we are extremely lucky, yeah, for sure. Mm. Did you know that the bomb over Hiroshima was incredibly crude and inefficient? When it exploded, about 99% of the uranium that was supposed to undergo the chain reaction didn't. Is that right? Yeah. So... Mm. So it was only just 1% or 2% of the uranium in that bomb that actually went off. There you go. Yeah. um, So that's why, uh, you know, if we have an accident now, um, we won't be so lucky. 
Well, exactly, yeah. Mm. Finally, just on Fox, um, oh, sorry, on Trump, there's just an, uh, there's a Trump-Fox feedback loop. So Fox News or Morning <laughs> Friends on Fox or whatever, we'll talk about Fox a topic. Fox yes. yeah. They'll talk about a topic. Donald Trump is just lying in bed in the White House alone because there's no way his wife's going to be with him. And <laughs> watching it, and then he tweets it, and then because the president's tweeted it, the rest of the media have to talk about it. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so Fox and Friends are driving news in the US at this stage. Yeah. It's absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? It's a sad situation. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Scott, we had the recent... Uh, death of Flo Bjorki Peterson in uh, Queensland, and yeah, and I don't like to speak ill of the dead. However, um, yeah, I don't think we're really mourning her passing, are we? Uh, no, and certainly <laughs> no. John Birmingham is not. So, no, dear listener, severe language warning. <laughs> So probably go for about five minutes. Uh, yeah, you might want to. Yeah, you might want to just uh, turn it off until the kids are out of yeah, the car. I think definitely no <laughs> kiddies in the car for this one. Um, so this is an article by John Birmingham, who uh, had wrote an obituary for Joby Jockey Peterson uh, when he was writing for Bulletin magazine, and with the recent death of Floby Jockey Peterson, he's dug up some of the stuff that he said. And um, I'm going to quote from this article here that I've linked to, um, because apparently Malcolm Turnbull came out and and said nice things about Flo and uh, sad over her demise or something like that. And John Birmingham's going, are you a complete muppet? Like, mm. this is not somebody to, you know, fawn over. Uh, and... Uh, he says here, in all of the maudlin, confected nostalgia generated by Flo's long overdue demise, something precious has been forgotten. The hate. Yeah. Because there were thousands of us trapped north of the Tweed who hated that vicious, crack-brained yahoo she married with a visceral intensity. And we weren't too fucking fond of her ceaseless <laughs> attempts to humanise him either. <laughs> There were many of us who looked back on the Bajelki Peterson era as a walking night, uh, as a waking nightmare, when a gang of slack-jawed yokels, crooks, bandits, half-smart chances, and degenerate greedheads ensconced themselves in power by brutally crushing all opposition, debauching the public offices, and rewarding favoured cronies with a sort of naked contempt for propriety that would have impressed Ferdinand Marcus or Manuel Noriega. <laughs> This guy's got a little bit of the uh, Christopher Hitchens about him. In, you know, he does, Christopher yes. Christopher Hitchens yeah. was just scathing when he got stuck into people, and, and so does this guy. He says, As long as there is a spark of life in Australian democracy, the mid-1980s, when Jockey Peterson ruled alone, at the very zenith of his powers, should be studied, studied in civics courses. 
as an object lesson in what happens when untrammeled power is gathered into the shaky, liver-spotted hands of a stuttering, proto-fascist brute with just enough rat-bastard cunning to mask his true nature behind a carefully constructed facade of endearing bumpkinery. (laughs) (laughs) These are great lines. Oh, he goes on here. He gave his wife a fucking Senate seat in the National Parliament, for fuck's sake. And the only surprising thing about it was he didn't get his complete Caligula on by sending a fucking horse down there in the number two spot. (laughs) Here we go. For Flo, I think the appropriate send-off would involve tossing her down a disused shaft in the Ipswich coal mine where she once enticed a group of striking miners to the surface with the promise of pumpkin scones and a chat to sort out their differences. And when they came up, question mark, the cops beat the bleeding shit out of them and the strike breakers charged in and her jabbering fascist husband proclaimed it a great day for all the people of the Sunshine Reich. Stay dead, motherfuckers, you won't be missed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy, oh, boy. I like this line here. Um, Where are we? Uh, before the okay, there was no Schadenfreude in seeing Bjorki Peterson humiliated before the Fitzgerald inquiry when he was unable to explain what was meant by the doctrine of separation of powers, because all it did was hammer home the truth that we'd been comprehensively ass raped by a man with the ethics of a starving sewer rat and the political instincts of a saber tooth baboon with a really <laughs> scorching meta- methamphetamine addiction. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like I said, I don't like to speak ill of the dead, but uh, yeah, reading that, it was very powerful, wasn't it? It was very amusing. Mm, colourful language. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Right, that's the end of the language warning. You can <laughs> kiddies come back on and listen. If any, you know, dear listener, do your kids ever listen to this podcast? It's hard to imagine. But anyway, we'll get. My nephew does. Oh, good. Like, how, how old is he? Oh, he's no, he's twenty oh, in July. Okay, yeah. there you go. Um, okay. Hello, Raleigh. How are you, yeah. Raleigh? Um, okay, bit of an article. We've got Australia Day coming up, Scott. Uh, article here entitled uh, "Australian Dystopia," uh, and it says, rather than being a day of shame, January twenty-six provides Australian history with a firm foundation. We know precisely when civilization came to this continent in the form of literacy, commerce and industry, judicial independence and rule of law, individual rights, free speech and Christianity. Well, you know, I was with him all the way until the very end there. Until the very end, yeah, yeah. I thought you would be. Yeah. Um, uh, he mentions in this article, remember we spoke about that lady who wrote an article and talked about the Aboriginal, like, apocalypse. And so we don't have to imagine an apocalypse, we survived one. We don't have to imagine a dystopia, we live in one. That was Claire Coleman in her novel Terra Nullius. And he criticises her by saying, it should go without saying that those who take this position are hypocrites, especially those Aboriginal identities loudest in condemning the arrival of the British. If the continent had never been colonised, Miss Coleman would not be writing novels. She would be illiterate without a roof over her head or a room of her own. 
<sighs> Rather than being a day of shame, the date provides Australia... Yeah, actually, I said that quite already. Sorry. Um, and... It was inevitable that in the age of European expansion, one of the imperial powers would colonise this continent sooner or later. It is not hard to argue that the most benign possible outcome was the one that occurred at the hands of the British. And that is something I have often thought of myself because um, I remember at uni when there was a, a protest outside state parliament and that sort of stuff, and I just looked at it and thought, oh, it's just the blacks going burko. Mm. Um, I since found out that it was in regards to stolen wages, which I do think they have an argument for. Absolutely. I do think I do think that we should somehow find a way to compensate them mm. for their wages that were stolen because that was wrong. And, you know, there are all sorts of questions about Redcliffe Hospital and all that sort of stuff being built on stolen wages. Anyway. I, um, I agree with you 100%. Yeah. Um, I remember saying at the time, saying, oh, you know, they should be thankful because if it wasn't for the British, it would have been the French. <laughs> and someone said, yeah, well, they should be thankful for small mercies. Yeah. And it was just a throwaway line. However, given the history of imperialism around the world, you do have to argue that the British were probably the most benign. If you had a choice, okay. yeah. If you had a choice. If you had to be enslaved by someone, it might as well be the English. Mm-hmm. You know, at least they brought a rule of law with them and that sort of stuff, whereas the the French and the Germans treated their colonies very, very badly. Mm-hmm. Mm. Scott, remember we were talking about uh, the increase in the number of people claiming to be Aboriginal? Yeah. And, uh, and there's a GST effect with all of this because under the agreement for splitting up the GST amongst the states, there... Uh, there's an, a special allocation uh, if you happen to have a high, you know, indigenous population in your state. Which is wrong. Uh, yes. <laughs> it and really shouldn't be. It shouldn't be that. It should be based on poverty and that sort of thing. So with the increase in the population of Aboriginals in places, you know, of suburban Australia, you know, in the leafy suburbs of Canberra and Tasmania, uh, funding that should be going to remote Aboriginal communities in the Northern Territory is actually going to, uh, you know, the ACT in Tasmania instead. Mm. And the Aboriginal groups are looking at this and saying, well, that's not right. So the, currently the Productivity Commission has been asked to prioritise the needs of remote communities in its review of how GST dollars are distributed to the states. Um, uh, and um, the Yothu Yindi Foundation proposes that the definition of Aboriginality be changed so that increasing numbers of people from the south of the nation identifying as Aboriginal do not tip the scales against the disadvantaged Indigenous population in remote parts of the Northern Territory. And Saul Eastlake says, well, that's going to cost Tasmania a fair bit of money. Um, And uh, Aboriginal lawyer Michael Mansell says government government funds are not currently being distributed properly, and he says it should be based on need rather than someone declaring I am an Aboriginal. But I think what he was saying is people need to say, I am Aboriginal 
and I'm in need, as opposed to just I'm in need. wasn't exactly clear. Mm. But, uh, mm. you know, this is the problem. Once you start giving out money because of somebody's race, then you're heading for trouble when it should be something based on need. Exactly. Yeah. It really should be. Mm. You know, and it, it shouldn't matter what your ethnicity is or religious background or anything else. You've just got to demonstrate that you are in need and that should be enough for the government to fund you. Yeah. Yep. Mm. Um, so, um, so, yeah. So that was that on uh, Aboriginal Affairs. Um, short article or short comment to make... Uh, after the Royal Commission, the um, Catholics came out and said, oh, well, you know, we're not going to change our rules about confession and we're not going to change our rules about celibacy. Like, they completely um, uh, belligerent in the way they were saying that they weren't going to pay any attention to the recommendation of the Royal Commission. And this article says that well, one of the reasons they're so ballsy about this is they know they're going to get support in Rupert Murdoch's press and gives evidence that really the Australian and other Murdoch papers um, have given the Catholics a free ride. And um, it says here, in the first editorial after the Royal Commission final report was published, the Australian warned that the Commission's recommendations on celibacy and the confessional, quote, may be cases of the Commission straying beyond its brief. And the Victorian editor wrote the Commission's simplistic recommendations were tabloid attacks on basic church practices. So, so yeah... Uh, basically an article saying that the Murdoch Press is just giving the Catholics a pretty free ride. And it's pretty hard to argue with that because it is ridiculous how much of a free ride they have been given. Mm. Mm. You know, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Mm. it, It beggars belief that they have. I mean, anyway, one would hope that the Catholic Church starts to contract its numbers anyway yeah hey scott last week we talked about the shoppies union and and what they were up to and one of our listeners actually um was very interested in it and she was already um pretty pissed off with them and that sort of prompted her to actually resign from the union and and she was talking to her union rep from the shoppies union who was also really angry with what head office was doing and was thinking about quitting themselves and um yeah. and she actually um good on it um has told a lot of the members at her workplace about our podcast and put them onto us and so about a hundred people now know about us who didn't before so exactly uh, thank you very much thank you and just another article here scott about the shoppies union and this time to do with them and domino's pizza and mm. basically it looks like that the shoppies union have struck a deal with Domino's Pizza whereby um, uh, part-time employees will effectively accept the conditions of a casual employment for an extra two cents per hour. (laughs) 
as if anybody would give up anything for two cents an hour. So, yeah. uh, so if you're interested in that topic, dear listener, there's a link there. Of course, a part-time employee at least knows what days they're working and they're regular, whereas a casual, you know, it's a roster you don't know until five days in advance of what you're doing. So a very much more unstable lifestyle. And um, there's a rival union called the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, and a guy called Josh Cullinan is the secretary of that rival union who basically has poo-pooed this agreement that the shoppies union has tried to get through, and he seems to think that it won't be approved. But uh, in any event, another example of the shoppies union doing something which on the face of it doesn't seem to be in the best interests of its members, and yeah. It's hard to see how it could be in the best interests of the members, because, you know, a part-time worker, they're 25 hours a week. They're talking about 50 cents a week, mm. you know, and they've had them casualised and that sort of stuff. So the point that um, you can just have a shift change just sprung on you, which I find absolutely ridiculous now. So, so anyway. dear listener, if you're in a workplace and the shoppies union is your union, I'd seriously consider getting together with your fellow workers and switch into a different union if you can, because I wouldn't trust them to do the right thing by you. No, and I... Just as just on the basis of these two articles we have read, they are a shocking union, mm. you know. Mm. And I've read in more and that sort of stuff, and perhaps it is ridiculous that um, you've got a situation where that that they're, they're represented by one of the most conservative unions in the country. Yeah, perhaps rather than calling them the Shoppies Union, we should call them the Shocky Union. The shocky well, exactly. Union. Yeah. 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 Scott, um, I think, you know, countries that we have agreed we can never visit, uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure Egypt was already on the list, but if it wasn't, it, it's on the list. It is now, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Parliament's Committee on Religion is about to prepare an explanatory note on a draft law to criminalise atheism in, in Egypt. Uh, the law consists of four articles. The first defines atheism, the second criminalises atheism, and imposes severe sanctions. The third stipulates that the penalties would be cancelled if a person eschews his atheist beliefs. And the fourth one dictates that the penalties declared in the law are severe. That doesn't sound good. No, it doesn't. Yeah. Cross Egypt off the list. Well, I'd never intended to go anyway, but um, yeah. that just makes it even more that, that just makes it even more ridiculous, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah. Singapore's okay. We can visit there. Absolutely, mm. yeah. They've got a great thing going with their organ donation. Mm. We, we'd, um, we'd propose this ourselves. Didn't we come up with this idea independently at some uh, stage? Or not? We've come up with different ideas. But anyway, mm. in Singapore, all citizens are automatically signed up for organ donation when they turn 21. Those who opt out have a lower priority for getting an organ if they need a transplant in the future bloody good great system it really is it is a great system because you don't you don't get crossed off the list entirely which is what myself and the fist i think proposed but if there's someone else that has not necessarily a greater need than you yep but has a need they go ahead of you when organs become available and that is bloody good it really is high time that we make everyone understand 
that organ donation is everyone's responsibility because every one of us could need them at some stage. Yep. And you've got to appeal to some selfish motivations out there to get people to do the right thing sometimes. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. You, you really do. But, you know, it's it's really great. You know, I, I think it's a wonderful law. So. I mean, you know, how could anybody argue against that, you might think? Because <laughs> well, you know, there have been a few comments on this, which um, uh, this this one really got me. Uh, sorry, but that's wrong. The government doesn't own your body. Organ donation, whilst has benefits, and I personally would should be a private choice, not forced. Um, it's not forced at all. You're simply giving up your line in the queue. That's all you're still going to be in the queue, but you're going to be further down that line. Yeah. So I don't think it's bad at all. I think it's great. And you're not forced to give up an organ if you don't want to. Just, exactly. Just opt out. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So apparently, you know, when in your early 20s, you receive a letter from the government telling you that you are opted in for organ donation automatically, and they um, include information about the program, what they will harvest, how it can help people how's the situation like with the hardship of finding organ donors as well as your rights and they even include an opt-out letter should you want to do so postage paid by the government so sounds a pretty fair system to me absolutely it is mm. yeah it is it's yeah mean, meanwhile you know it's a really fair system i don't have a problem yeah. with it i think it should be brought into australia yeah so this is a facebook post that we're sort of linking to dear listener one of the other commentators on this is this is a John Mitchell. My only problem with this is, if it's true, is that you are punishing people for personal choices. Uh, I get the whole, if you're not willing to give up, you should be lower priority to get a donation. But that's blackmail, says John Mitchell. I mean, these are the nutcases you've got to deal with in the world. You know, as a politician, isn't it? You know, it's just somebody who doesn't get it. Um, and that's it. These, these, these people that were negatively commenting on this little tiny things been put up on Facebook, mm. they just don't understand it, mm. you know, and th- that is what it is. Well, they've got so. a very skewed v- view of how ethics and morality work, so, mm. yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay, Scott, we're nearly there. Uh, actually, oh, okay, I haven't spoken, I didn't send you this one, but I just stumbled across an article by Kenan Malik. We haven't discussed him in a while, and... Mm. Uh, there's a link there, dear listener, if you're a Kenan Malik fan. And basically what he says is that, you know, we have a common phrase called white working class, but we never actually use that working class in relation to other cultural groups. We don't really talk about a black working class or a Muslim working class or a feminist working class or whatever so it's strictly white and um he's there talking about a situation of uh the education system in the uk where there was a bit of a debate um and talking about the difficulties that white working class boys were having in terms of reaching sort of um average scholastic levels um and he talks about different studies i'll just quote a bit of it here 
Then, as now, the picture was more complicated than the public debate suggested. Black pupils were not alone in performing badly, nor did they all perform badly. Three ethnic groups lagged behind, African, Caribbeans, Pakistanis and Bangladeshis. Three groups fared better than the average, and these were the Chinese, Indians and Africans. The differences were not simply ethnic. Uh, The ones who did badly came largely from working class and peasant backgrounds, whereas the Indian, Chinese and Africans tended to be more middle class. Uh, Racism undoubtedly played a part. So did class differences. But the academics and policy makers were so driven by ethnicity that they largely ignored the class problems. And uh, so, yeah, it's basically saying that we need to be looking at class differences, not ethnic differences. And class, and if you're going to look at ethnic differences, look at the class differences within those ethnicities, which harkens back to the whole thing to do with the Aboriginals earlier on with providing GST funding because you've got lots of Aboriginals, or really, you know, are they poor working-class Aboriginals or are they wealthy elite Aboriginals, you know? Are they in remote hardship areas or not? So these are the things that just don't get talked about. Ethnic groups are never sort of categorised by class, whereas white people are, and if we're going to start getting some proper solutions, then we need to start talking about the different class structures rather than the ethnic differences. There you go. Absolutely. That's yeah. the Ken and Malik article in a nutshell. So there we go, Scott. That's episode 129 in the can where we're up and running again <laughs> in 2018 and I'll be back in Brisbane next week and I think we'll probably be able to get the 12th man on board as well and get his no contribution as well. So dear listener, if you're a patron, good on you. Much appreciated. If you've found some interesting... Thank you very yeah, much. We appreciate that. If you've got any interesting articles, send them to us. And otherwise, we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye now. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't 
listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.